know war is to know that there is still madness in this world. There are poor to be lifted up, and there are cities to be built, and there's a world to be helped. Yet, we do what we must. I am hopeful, and I will try with best I can with everything I've got to end this battle and to return our sons to their desires. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we proved once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. This is the Random History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Van Dyke, and you can reach us on Twitter or at our website, randomhistorypodcast.com. Hi, and welcome to a Random History Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Van Dyke. My apologies for the delay in uh, release for a new episode. I've recently moved, uh, taken on a new job, and now been promoted. That's kind of put me behind my uh, schedule that I had intended to release. Um, currently, though, I am writing a script uh, ready for the next episode. I think I got the research pretty well down, so... I don't want to take too much time here and ramble on for a while because this is a pretty lengthy episode we have here today. So I just kind of want to get right into it, um, right in about the polar bear expedition itself. So great news. So I would like to kind of set the scene here. Now we're talking about the polar bears now in uh, Russia. So it's 40 degrees below zero. Everything is frozen. Men know not to touch the barrel of their gun with a bare hand, or their hand will freeze to it. A young farm boy from West Michigan, fresh out of school, is above the Arctic Circle, assigned to a field hospital with the 337th treating servicemen. Not primarily of injuries from battle, but rather victims of this mysterious disease called the Spanish flu. A Greek immigrant lays in a different field hospital after retreating via reindeer sled with the 339th. Not of bullet wounds but a mysterious illness. Both are in Arctic Russia for the same reason, intervention in the Russian Civil War. They did not realize it when they arrived in Archangel in July of 1918. The World War was soon to be over, but they would not be going home with the rest of the Allies. They were stuck in a British expedition with objectives that were no longer relevant before they even arrived, fighting Bolsheviks, or Bolos as they called them, that was supposedly tied to a war that was to end in November. The U.S. forces were bogged down in a quagmire, in a desert, without clear military objectives to bring freedom to a people that did not seem to want the help. This is not mid-2000s Iraq. This is 1918, 1919 Russia. When it's all over, no one remembers this quagmire, and the politicians that do know about it seem to gloss over it. So much so that when President Nixon visited the Soviet Union and addressed its people in 1972, he said, and I quote, Our two countries have much in common. Most important of all, we have never fought one another in war. On the contrary, 
the memory of your soldiers and ours embracing at the Alb as allies in 1945 remains strong in millions of hearts in both our countries. End quote. Well, I suppose that's good news. <laughs> this whole thing we're talking about, it never happened. But this is a lot of the reason why we are talking about this, though, isn't it? This did happen. To the politicians in the West, this was a forgettable side campaign that was not worth much note and needed not really to be talked about because it outlasted the war it was supposed to aid in. The Bolsheviks, who became the Soviets, have a better memory, however. This is burned into their psyche. The West will invade if they feel like it, and it means nothing to them. In this context, as mentioned before, the actions and fear the Soviets had make a lot more sense, don't they? The U.S. Army under British command was there. How exactly did this come about? Whose idea was it, and how did the U.S. end up agreeing to go? This is a side operation in a large war, meaning there was not going to be a lot of resources put into it. Not for the soldiers, but also not for us now reviewing history. Not a lot of people are going to spend a lot of time on it, so records are hard to come by, and there have been few trying to sleuth out clues. So from here on, I will try to be careful and let you know from what I have as fact and where I am attempting to add to the well of knowledge. So soon after the U.S. joins the war, France loops the U.S. in on an ongoing discussion uh, the French and British are having about sending troops to Russia. The U.S. dismisses the idea of involvement out of hand. After all, the U.S. does not believe in military intervention these days. Well, excuse me. I mean outside of North America, Mexico, Central America, South America, the Caribbean, the Pacific Islands, and East Asia. The U.S. does not intervene in Europe. Other than the one million soldiers it has already pledged to the Western Front, you see the United States does not stick its nose in other nations' business. Unless their business conflicts with U.S. interests in the previously mentioned geographic spheres. The U.S. is an isolationist country, after all. The path to how the U.S. agreed to send troops is quite interesting. Even in the aid memoir, it sounds more like an administration being dragged along. It has the tone of an email from a VP in a company they send to state their opposition to the duties he or she must carry out and explains why they're doing what they're doing is wrong, and they disagree with it. Oh, oh, that sounds bad. Let's add in a few paragraphs about how we're only speaking for ourselves and that we're a team player and that we are in no way disparaging higher ranking people who think this is a splendid idea. After all, we can disagree without being disagreeable and still carry out our duties. Meanwhile, the VP prints the email to keep for their records. And when things turn south, they'll be needed to cover their back. On December 30th, 1917, Caldwell telegrams, quote, the British Consul has telegrams from Petrovsky dated the 27th and 28th. The state Irkutsk in flames, Bolsheviks murdering and plundering inhabitants, ravishing women, corpses murdered, children covered the streets, French and British exterminated, French consular agent and two French officers murdered, help implored. Japanese have been informed. Notify Secretary of State Mosier. I will consult my colleagues and telegraph later any recommendations agreed upon. End quote. It may be useful in this instance to know where um, Irkutsk is geographically. I mean, obviously we can kind of tell where it sits on a level of difficulty scale for an English speaker, but where is it located on the map? 
So it, it's situated north of the center line of Mongolia, just north into Russia. This was not an easy place for Bolos to pacify. This was the site of a number of bloody battles, and the white Russians were not defeated until 1920. A side note, I did not find any books in English on this uh, from a cursory glance, uh, but from the little information I did find, it would be great history to go over. Just after midnight, Caldwell telegrams the Secretary of State, quote, May 2nd, Francis tells Secretary of State time for intervention has arrived. May 3rd, 1918, Russian government forbids allies from sending coded telegrams without Russian approval. May 4th, Francis telegrams Secretary of State that the French on May 2nd were refused by Russian government to send a coded telegram and now has done so for the rest of the allies. End quote. The tone of Francis is shock. You know, he had felt that France being refused was in retaliation for France not responding to Russian requests to recall the French ambassador. Uh, he further muses that this was the path towards the removal of diplomatic immunity. In fact, the people may be so upset that they themselves might overthrow the bolos. Um, I don't think that anybody really cared that much on the street level that the diplomats were being treated rudely, especially when you're talking about Bolsheviks. Can you believe the bourgeoisie French were treated rudely? I just don't see that overthrowing a government, but that's that's not read from the telegrams, of course. That's just my commentary on that. May 12th, Francis tells the Secretary of State, quote, monarchical sediment growing, also opposition to Bolshevik domination increasing throughout, end quote. He also states that he has been in contact with others in Russia and is assured the Bolsheviks are dead. And Francis again follows up with hoping his recommendations for intervention are being considered by the Allies. On May 15th, Poole, he's the consul at Moscow, telegrams the Secretary of State reporting on Lenin, reiterating its policy that, quote, the Soviet government must retrench intact while the imperial powers devour each other. He continues effort to embroil the United States and Japan, saying, quote, an inevitable conflict will arise between Japan and America for supremacy of Pacific and its coasts. The conflicting interests of the two imperialistic countries now screened by an alliance against Germany check the movement of Japanese imperialism against Russia, end quote. Well, that is some foreshadowing if I've ever seen it. Uh, Poole also then quotes a telegram from the Soviet representative in Berlin stating that Germany will halt its advances and treat Russia as it does all neutral countries and respect the Bresk uh, Treaty. Telegrams continue with Francis, the ambassador in Russia, giving updates to the Secretary of State about one, what Lenin is saying. To sum it up, the imperialist capitalist nations are throwing the lives of peasants into the meat grinder to achieve the capitalist aims of each nation. The Germans were moving into the now neutral countries, Ukraine and Finland, to exert influence, trading partnerships, of course. This was not well received by the French or British, more on the British part in a bit. Poole continues to telegram, stating the Russians want to overthrow the Bolsheviks and are asking for German help as they have given up on the Allies. Russia is being broke apart as tribes declare independence. Francis, meanwhile, is just reporting about Lenin and Germany agreeing to be friends without benefits. Reports of Finns attacking Murmansk as they feel they have the backing of Germany, but, he, but the local Soviet paired with the small British contingent repulses them. The central Soviet looks to Germany for help. This information was supplied by Poole to Francis. The concern being is that if the Finns, 
the Germans, capture Murmansk, it could jeopardize the position of Archangel. Critically, where the U.S. and British are sending merchant supplies, quote-unquote, that are otherwise unavailable locally. Francis has a concern. If the intervention would occur, it could put the conservatives in a position to ally itself with Germany, which would leave the allies with few friends in Russia. On May 21st, for the first time, Francis gives his opinion that intervention in the form of the British and French through cooperation to defend Murmansk on May 23rd, Francis laments, quote, daily I see evidences that the Soviet government submits to German demands without protest, and I'm almost convinced Lenin and possibly Trotsky are pliable tools, if not responsive German agents. German action in Ukraine and Finland did not provoke protests, capture of Sivzapul and demolition of Eno, both of which, Chicharin stated, would be defended to the last ditch, have been ignored or palated by the Soviet government. Lenin's last speech was very comprehensive, but mostly it was camouflage and intended to satisfy everybody. But his main objective was to prove that Germany is endeavoring to observe the Brest Treaty and adroitly endeavored to estrange America and Japan. He tamely submits to German tyranny while soothing his followers with the statement that the proletariat revolution is surely coming, but its champions must be patient and submit to vicissitudes. He commissions Robbins to you with what he considers tempting propositions of preferential commercial advantages prejudicial to our allies, especially to France. Robbins, while saying nothing more on the subject, told a friend at station that he was going to America, quote, unquote, with the goods, and evidently hoped to be successful if the Soviet government would survive until he could reach Washington. German officers established in the House of Volga had representatives at station continuously, going secretly to Archangel and investigating stored munitions and conditions generally. Soviet government making no effort to evacuate supplies from Moscow, where immense quantities were assembled. Also, secret concentration of troops and supplies in Finland near Russian border and reported cutting Merman line together with activity of German submarines near Merman all signified Germans planning dispossess allies of Merman, which I think, according to secret understanding with Soviet government, should be resisted by allies. Soviet government claims that what remains of Russia is a neutral country, Ukraine boundary still undermined, but estimated population of surrendered territory is 36 million, and its most productive Russian section. Finland is still covetously endeavoring to secure more Russian territory. While the telegrams continue, you can see the wheels of the war machine turning sharply, can't you? Poole learns that Germans told the Soviet essentially, you want us to respect Merman? We will respect your rights when you respect your own. Boot the Allies out and we'll think about listening. At the same time, the Russians... Assumption, I'm assuming here, they're referring to the local Soviet, handed over three destroyers to the British and French to be retrofitted. Francis gives a lengthy message to the Central Soviet that the U.S. has no territorial claims in this war and is in Russia with experts to build up Russia so she does not become a Russian province. Oddly, the American consul in Vladivostok named John Codwell was given um, permission to use ciphers in his cables again. Francis suggested that the sec to the Secretary of State not to use them as the favoritism might cause a uh, fraction within the Allies. The drama was continuing, with remnants of the Tsar regime working with Germany. 
the local Soviet merman doing its own thing until the territory was finally ceded to the Finns. If this is not confusing enough, the remnants of the old regime that was working with Germany requested a token of friendship from the Allies, being a warship that arrived under British command. On June 11th, we have a telegram where Francis is stating that the Soviet government seems likely to collapse and the, quote, Czech opposition disturbed Soviet government, which is sending troops to disarm, end quote. Wait, what? Czechs? What, what are Czechs doing in Soviet Russia? So this, this is a bit of a fun story. So these Czechoslovaks were actually prisoners of war from the Austrian army. Many of the captured soldiers in the Austrian Empire's army were Orthodox. Remember that third Rome thing? So, Brother Orthodox were armed and were leaving the POW camps to join the war in France when the Tsarist government collapsed. Fun fact, the provisional government did not actually kill the royal family after the revolution. They were placed in house arrest. When the Bolsheviks took over, they also did not go and kill the royal family. The Bolsheviks did, though, kill the royal family in haste on July 17, 1918, when the Czech Legion was en route to free the royal family. Think about that timing. We have telegrams stating that the Bolsheviks were teetering on collapse, unable to hold the factions together. They had failed to disarm the white Russians, the, which is the provisional government, and the royal family was still there looking like an alternative to the chaos and factionalism. If that's not enough, you have a legion that has been unsuccessfully disarmed numerous times, marching to the emperor, ostensibly in the name of orthodoxy, while the Bolsheviks were also hostile to the church. The Bolsheviks at that moment decided the Romanovs not just had to go, but they needed to be removed from the buffet of options. The Czech Legion making this move is bold, but it makes sense. The Allies were noted how poorly the Czechs were treated by local Soviets, and the U.S. informs a central Soviet in early June that it would consider disarmament a hostile action. At the end of June, the U.S. is in back channels. It is not arguing the fact that Michael, brother of the Tsar, should be allowed to meet up with the Czechoslovak troops. By July 2nd, the Czechs are formidably disarming Red Guards at the local Soviet. On July 2nd, 1918, the Supreme War Council concludes, It is time for intervention in Russia. The murder of the Romanovs does not make sense until we considered Allied intervention and a Czech legion making huge gains in our intending on reinstalling the monarchy. So what are the goals? If the uh, Supreme War Council says, hey, let's go in, what are the goals here? So this is what they set out. Assist Russia in throwing off the German oppressors. Two, reconstitute the Eastern Front. Three, prevent Russian isolation. Four, deny Germany supplies of Western Siberia. Vladivostok, which are allied supplies for the former war effort. And number five, assist the Czechoslovak forces. The British have been silent. If there's one thing we know about the British Empire's foreign offices and intelligence unit, it's that they sat silent and they did not meddle in, the other, in others' businesses in sneaky and or covert ways. This statement is supported by the telegrams I'm going to highlight. Are you ready? Okay, that's all of them. That's it. They're absent. They were clearly not going to manipulate anyone into taking action. <coughs> Zimmerman telegram. <coughs> so what gives here? The British are the masters of the world right now, 
And yet the French, the white Russians, and Chinese have been feeding Poole all of this information. Yet not a word from the Brits. When we look at some of the other telegrams, especially as it relates to East Russia, we see the Chinese, white Russians, and French are forwarding quote-unquote reports of, without, without any citation to their source. The British and French want the U.S. to lead an expedition with the Japanese in East Russia at the same time as the campaign we have been discussing, or we're about to. It starts with Japanese are going to invade. Then when the ambassador in Japan asks about it, they seem sort of annoyed and they're like, no, we didn't do that. What's wrong with you, you silly American? And then again, quote unquote, reports of come again from the same party saying Japan invaded Russia. We see a telegram asking the ambassador in Japan to ask about this, and you can almost see the eye roll in the telegram. I am speculating right here, but this all seems like planet information. The wording is disturbingly British, and reports from the three prior mentioned parties are near word for word. Take that December 30th, 1917 telegram, for example, quote unquote, Bolsheviks murdering and plundering inhabitants, ravishing women, corpses murdered, children cover streets, end quote. Sounds like it was pulled from a newspaper headline, not something you would see on a diplomatic cable for investigation. Three nations that are not English-speaking by default coming up with the same English wording does seem a bit suspicious. While the Treaty of Brest negotiations were going on, it's clear the British are fearing the loss of trade of the natural resources, more than the collapse of the Eastern Front. Of course, I'm not saying that a preeminent global superpower would ever trick another nation to go to war in a desert to ensure access to a natural resource for capitalistic ventures. I mean, obviously that would never happen. But if I was a betting man... Well, anyway, back to the point. No matter what cloak and dagger action may or may not have transpired, it does not change the point. Allied intervention was happening in the east of Russia. A coalition of allies to link up with that of the infamous Czech Legion. They, the U.S. sent the 27th Infantry, 31st Infantry, and portions of the 12th, 13th, and 62nd Infantry. In the west, landing in Archangel on August 2nd, 1918, we begin... The arrival of the 310th Engineers, the 339th Infantry, the 337th Field Hospital, and the 337th Ambul Ambulance Company. Ladies and gentlemen, the American Expeditionary Force of North Russia, a.k.a. the Polar Bears, have arrived for duty. Dobrovecher, I deeply appreciate this opportunity. From all the people of the United States, and to share with you some of my thoughts about the relations between our two countries and about the way to peace and progress in the world. This is my fourth visit to the Soviet Union. On these visits, I have gained a great respect for the peoples of the Soviet Union, for your strength, your generosity, your determination for the diversity and richness of your cultural heritage, for your many achievements. In the three years I have been in office, one of my principal aims has been to establish a better relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union. Our two countries have much in common. Most important of all, we have never fought one another in war. On the contrary, 
the memory of your soldiers and ours embracing at the Elbe as allies in 1945 remains strong in millions of hearts in both of our countries.